everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your host, Cooper Wilhelm, and it is my distinct pleasure to join you, or for you to join me. Hi, hey, hello. Uh, we've got a great show for you today. I'm going to be talking to uh, Catherine Diedrich of Quadrivium Supplies, an excellent supplier of magical materia, specifically oils. Very fun stuff. And I decided, you know, it would be fun to draw a card on the episode to say how is this episode going to go, which feels a bit strange given that I did this recording of this interview uh, about two or three weeks ago, so in a way it's kind of already been determined how it's going to go. But you know, time isn't real, or it is real but it doesn't move the way we think, you know, time is sort of like a river that is on top of another river that is the same river, and also it's an ocean, and a highway, and a cloud. Either way, though, uh, so the card I pulled was the Five of Hearts, which I, in the system I typically use for reading playing cards, which is Professor Charles Porterfield's, that would be an arbor of roses, but I thought I would take a look at one of the many old sources of information we have for how we can do cardomancy, and today's source in the spirit of exploration is New Fortune Book or Conjurer's Guide, the only real fortune teller, which was published in Glasgow by the look of it at least 100, 150 years ago. And this source tells us that the Five of Hearts means, and I quote, Note that this Five of Hearts declares thou shalt well manage great affairs, but if it's drawn by fair women, they sure will love all sorts of men. Uh, so managing great affairs sounds like a lot of fun. It's interesting this tradition of brief pamphlets on how to read playing cards because for some reason they tend to rhyme i've noticed which i i am not against but it's fascinating there's a, there's one that i am trying to translate right now out of german uh which also rhymes and hopefully once i have that translated i'll be able to to put that somewhere where people can find it because it's very old so i don't think there's going to be any sort of copyright concerns the biggest issue with this is just that um it uses alternative spellings in german um, and also is in uh, one of those old German alphabets that are a little hard to read for me as a native speaker of English. Anyway, that having gotten out of the way, and with these promises of great success, let's do our Plague Magic Minute. So today's Plague Magic Minute comes to us courtesy of the Frank C. Brown Collection of North Carolina Folklore. Uh, which was collected by Dr. Frank C. Brown during the years 1912 to 1943 in collaboration with the North Carolina Folklore Society. In it, he tells us that he has found, quote, to cure a whooping cough, find a blackberry or raspberry bush whose top has been turned down and taken root, make the patient crawl under it three times, and points at this idea of passing through as a strong ritualistic history of of people or objects passing through holes or or coverings to try to cleanse them of of malefic things that are attached to them it actually brings to mind for me a little bit um, a cure from reginald scott's the discovery of witchcraft in which a man who was afflicted by i believe a venereal disease is instructed to pee through his wedding ring and somehow passing through that is going to cleanse him of that and so you know this is a cure for the whooping cough i think since coronavirus is is a cough you might give this a try but of course as with all other plague magic minutes that are provided as a public service for the rest of the year by witch hassle by all means consider this in addition to following standard evolving health guidelines don't do any of this instead of that but by all means sprinkle this on top uh so now we move on to my conversation with Catherine diedrich of quadrivium supplies a supplier of fantastic oils and she's also putting together a website on magical basics and a another project based around tables of correspondence so we had a fantastic conversation that honestly is part of what seems to be a growing accidental trend for this show of becoming essentially um, an oral history of the magical scene of sort of the 1990s which is kind of fun my partner suggested that i should just try to put like some kind of round table together on that topic but as that catalog builds here is its next little installment with my chat with Catherine diedrich i hope you enjoy I'd be very curious because I've been I've been doing some some background research on you, and I'd be very curious to hear about 
your journey through all this stuff because <laughs> which part <laughs> i mean honestly I, I i'd love to hear about the progression because you know like where you started and where that led to because i think a lot of people a lot of people i talk to or meet sort of like they start with chaos magic and then they go somewhere oh, else see no and and this yeah, is that's, yeah that's uh, my understanding of chaos magic right now it makes me feel really old because the way I learned about chaos magic was you figure out what works and you figure out what doesn't. But in order to figure out what works, first you have to be trained in at least one magical system. See, that sounds great. You have to go through the paces and jump through the hoops and learn all the stupid stuff that you're going to end up thinking is stupid and throwing it out. And that's because you need to learn a magical system just the whole thing. And then you get to decide what you keep and what you toss. Yeah, because, you have to learn the rules before you can cheat. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And so when I run into people now saying they're chaos magicians, I'm like, oh, you know, what's your background? There's a lot of, well, I'm a chaos magician. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I'm not going to argue with that. Because most of the chaos magicians that I knew came out of the Golden Dawn, came out of the OTO. You know, they, you had Aiden on, didn't you? Aiden Wachter? Oh, yeah. Sorry, I thought Aiden on was like a, the no, name of a different organization. No, you had Aiden on. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm very Midwestern. Uh, you had Aiden talking on here, and I believe he talked about having been with the Z Cluster. Yeah. And so I was Z Cluster as well. And so, which was really funny because we got on Facebook, and this guy named Aiden wanted to friend me. And I was like, I don't know anybody named Aiden. He was like, I'm Fire Clown. I'm like, oh, <laughs> Oh, I know Fire Clown. No idea who Aiden is. He was called Fire Clown on Z Cluster? He was. He was Fire Clown. I love that. That's that's so charming. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's funny because there's all kinds of people that I know only by their usernames from the Z Cluster. You didn't actually meet. I mean, we met each other. Um, we did what we called Z Meets, and I went to one in Los Angeles, and I went to one in I was Las Vegas, and I went to one in... Uh, I forget where the other one was, but, um, you know, like I met people that I'd only known online and in my head, they are still their online names, despite the fact that it is in many cases like 20 years later and, you know, we're all a lot older and <laughs> have done a lot of different things, but, you know, you, uh, you keep thinking of people the way you first met them. And for a lot of magicians, I first met them um, online through Z Cluster or through uh, Usenet or in another way but i can talk about my uh my history all you want because i know it it starts out weird i'd be very curious to know just because i think i i feel like a lot of especially younger folks these days they're either starting with chaos magic or they're starting with something that they are told or are given the impression is a traditional form of witchcraft but for the yeah. most part started it's... in like the 1960s uh, Thank you, Gerald. I mean, at this point, the older it gets, the more traditional it becomes. Right? I know, right? I mean, it's been a couple of years. So, I mean, there is, I remember back, you know, in the probably the early 90s, laughing about people saying that they were family tradition, except it's not as funny now because there's people who were second and third generation neo-pagans. They grew up. Literally, it is their family tradition. Gardnerian witchcraft or Alexandrian or what have you is actually their family tradition. And that takes me aback sometimes. <laughs> like, wait a minute, it actually did become a family tradition. I mean, it is cool that, I mean, there there have been studies, I think, in, in situations where children are raised in a language that their parents don't really speak that well. Mm -hmm. But from those bases, just because of the human capacity to create systems, They'll just create a full grammar for that language. Little sponges. Very amazing uh, stuff. I started out, as so many people do, in Catholicism. Only I started out, I like to say I'm more Catholic than anybody, because my father had been a Catholic priest for 17 years. And he met my mother, who was a nun, and they fell in love, and they left their uh, they were received dispensations from the Pope to laicize, and they got married, and they had me. So when I says it starts off weird, it starts off weird. <laughs> you know, you don't, 
when I was a kid, I thought that's just how it went. You grew up, you went to school, you became either a priest or a nun, you left, you got married, you had kids. Because not only was my father an ex-priest, my uncle was an ex-priest who married a former nun. And so my entire family, you know, that was just kind of how it went. And I can't tell you how surprised I was years later to find out that, in fact, (laughs) you got to skip the part where you took holy orders. (laughs) And you got to go straight to, if you wanted, getting married and having kids. So I like the idea that your version of the talk started with, well, first you go to seminary. And then... <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you get, get at least two degrees in theology, <laughs> at least two. Then you get to get married. All right. And when I say my family was Catholic, my family was Catholic. I mean, we were not the kind of religious fanatics, but my dad had been a pre-Vatican II priest. So... You know, the post-Vatican II church was pretty liberal from his point of view. So we went to, you know, I went to Mass every Sunday. I went to Catholic school. I think all told, I had 21 years of Catholic education when you go from preschool to grad school. Yeah, a lot of of stuff. And uh, so I went to a Catholic high school where I took Latin. I went to a Catholic college sort of accidentally (laughs) and a Catholic graduate school accidentally as well. But when I was in college, as most people do, I got interested in things, different things. And one of the reasons that I got interested in things other than Catholicism was because when I was 15 and I was a junior in high school, I was in a car that was hit by a freight train. And so sometimes we talk about initiatory experiences, somebody's being initiated to from one state to another. That is sort of the way I see it was the big shift for me because I was in the hospital for three months. I had to relearn how to walk. It was a very traumatic experience. And that's not something you really ever put behind you. So I went to college. I got started looking around and getting interested in things that weren't Catholicism. And I found as you do in Chicago in the very early 1990s, you'll find a Wiccan coven. (laughs) And so I did. I found the Wiccans and I found the Neopagans and I hung out with them for a couple of years and I tried really, really hard to believe in their system of deities, but it didn't work. And then sort of from the pagan community where, you know, I have to say, I did learn a lot from the pagans and I learned about things that I wanted to do and I learned about things that I didn't want to do. And then I moved sort of away from neo-paganism and started getting interested in ceremonial magic. And in what I got interested in mostly was first was grimoires, because if you can read Latin already, you kind of have a head start when it comes to books on magic. And so I just started reading what I could and sort of going deeper and deeper into various kinds of ceremonial magic. So, you know, I looked into a bunch of systems. I won't say I studied them because studied makes it sounds like I joined them or I became initiated into them. And I apparently, you know, baptism was as far as it went with me. I wasn't interested in getting initiated into anything else. So I never went and joined the magical orders, but you can learn a fair amount about magical systems from the orders and from the material that they put out without taking an initiation. Most of them are, I don't want to say generous, but they're quite open to giving you information without having you join, or at least they were at the time. So was there a particular order that you felt very connected to a particular grimoire that you felt was sort of your big your big one um you know that's the sad part is that i was kind of tend in a weird way i was fond of the oto but that was mostly because at the time i knew so many of them and i was interested in the golden dawn but as with so much other ceremonial magic it's very male it's very very male and i got really tired of guys offering to teach me magic because I had already been practicing for 10 years. (laughs) And but because I was a woman, I was always going to be a beginner in a lot of people's view. I hope that has changed somewhat. But at the time, probably late 90s, that seemed to be an issue. And so that was about the time that uh, Usenet and IRC came on the scene. And all of a sudden, you could... I don't want to say hide behind a username, but you could become your username and nobody knew whether your username was a man or a woman. And that was quite handy. So I went and I joined Alt Magic and I read a bunch of stuff. And mostly my area of expertise is 
getting really excited about one particular topic and then going and learning everything I can about it and then going, okay, well, I guess I'm done with that one and then moving on to another. What were some some big examples of that? Well, I mean, without joining the OTU, I learned as much as I could about Thalema and Mm. Kenneth Grant. That was one of my rabbit holes. I, it wasn't that there's a lot there. It's a lot there. And I was just sort of like, I can't just, like it just keeps going. It just keeps going. And I did a lot of, um, you know, I, I think I read just about everything that Kenneth Grant had ever written. And then I was interested in Chicago. There's Michael Berdio. If you know, uh, he's pretty notorious. The Voodoo Gnostic Workbook. Oh, okay. I, I did, yeah. wasn't with you and now I'm with you. Yeah. But so I guess for the, for the kids at home who maybe are not familiar with the Voodoo Gnostic Workbook. <laughs> What is what is the Voodoo Gnostic workbook? Oh, you know, you would have to ask me that. <sighs> okay, so um, the Voodoo Gnostic workbook was something by a guy named Michael Bertio, and he, the Voodoo Gnostic workbook was kind of like there was voodoo in it, there was thelema in it, there was Gnosticism, there was. There was all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was like 600 pages long, and it was crazy. I mean, I mean, honestly, it was it was just crazy. It was, you know, he he uh, he's the person that Kenneth Grant talks about in Cults of the Shadow, Night Side of Eden, Outside the Circles of Time, and Hecate's Fountain. That's Michael Bertio, who he's talking about. So, I mean, his magical system is super complex, and it, you, he. He uses words that nobody else uses. And anyway, so the, I got really interested in Michael Bertio, not to the extent of I was ever going to take him seriously, and I was never going to think this was an actual magical system, but I was interested in the way the parts sort of hooked together, sort of how he how he put, you know, Gnosticism and Thelema aren't all that far apart. So, you know, I could see how that hooked in. But then he's got this whole sort of, oh, he used to call it, what does he call it? There was a, something in there about Atlantis and Afro-Atlantean magic. Cool. I mean, it was, yeah. I mean, anybody who finds the Voodoo Gnostic workbook, don't read it all at once and don't read it like you would another magical book, but it is entertaining. I mean, there's a big chunk of H.P. Lovecraft in it. <laughs> there's, I mean, I mean, it's, there's just nothing left out. The Voodoo Gnostic workbook's just all over the place. Here's a question, actually. Um, I wasn't planning to ask you about this, but um, a research project that I was working on a while back ago, it might still happen because, you know, I haven't heard back. I haven't heard much from that magazine since COVID started, so I don't really know what they're doing. But the the gods, the great old ones in the H.P. Lovecraft canon, how real do you feel that they are? See, then we get into chaos magic and created gods and how much power does something have if you believe if enough people believe in it what is it called egregore uh that you... is that is a term i've certainly heard for that yeah so that's kind of how i view them i would view them that way because and i've had the position of i was i wasn't i don't want to say i was an hp lovecraft fan but you know i had read mythos books august derleth and all that kind of stuff probably in the mid 90s and so by the mid 2000s when you started to see a ton of lovecraft mythos stuff coming out there was books there was there were books on the books and it was sort of gaining strength i was looking at it and saying wow this is this is a really good example of fake gods almost becoming real i don't know if they're real or not you know that's not my uh that's not my area. Or as they say in the South, that's not my church. <laughs> mm, that's a good one. I might have to steal that. I'm from New England. We don't really oh, okay. have very good sayings up there, except for um, you can't get there from here and uh, fuck around and find out, which, you know, not I'm great from, for all. I'm from Chicago, but I have spent time in South Carolina. So, yeah, that's Chicago. We, we have an entire variety of inventive terms that we use. So Okay, so you, you're, you're looking into the... the the Voodoo Bertio, workbook. Which would take you, honestly, the rest of your life <laughs> to sort of, you know, between Kenneth Grant and Michael Bertio, you got enough crazy for years. And sort of that's what I was interested in. I was like, okay, the crazier the better, because I'm interested in seeing not just how this works together, but why somebody would decide to do this. And then, 
you know, from there, I knew people who were into goetic magic, and I knew people who were into, you know, all kinds of different things. And I learned from them. And that's kind of how I ended up calling myself a chaos magician, because it was one of those things where I had never formally signed up for any one tradition. And I just sort of read the history and learned why people did what they did. And then I picked and chose among it as to what I wanted to use. Is this where your interest in tables of correspondence arose from having all these systems kind of? I mean, kind of, you know, one of the things that you will see across magical systems is tables of correspondence. And that's because, you know, that's the very basis of magic. Something you do in one realm affects something in another realm. You know, between something you do on a physical reality affects your mental reality and vice versa, or between spiritual and physical realities, planes of existence. What you do here here has an effect there. And that's basically magic, I would think. That's, uh, you know, our, depending on how you think of it, we want to do something here that has an effect on a different plane of existence or in a spiritual realm. So tables of correspondence, to me, the more I learned about them, it was like, okay, this is a language of symbols that makes things accessible to us. These are symbols for ideas, and it's a way that we can relate them to ourselves and almost tools that we can use to manipulate things. When you say symbols for ideas... Mm -hmm. Would you extend that as far as saying, like, um, if we associate, I don't know, a sink foil, I never know if I'm saying that right. But if, if you're if you're if we're associating that with, say, wealth, does one become a symbol for the other? Does one become a, a, a sort of character in the alphabet that signifies the other? I don't you know. That's it's a funny question. I've never really thought about that. And I would have to say no. Okay. Because while there are an unlimited number of ideas, there are a limited number of physical things that we would use. So sink foil, for example, might be used in good luck and it might be used in wealth, but it also might be used in six other ways. But then the question also becomes which which table of correspondence are you using? Because they're not they're not all the same. And I find tables of correspondence fascinating because they're a tool. They're a magic tool. And they're meant to be used. You're not supposed to put a table of correspondence on the wall and admire it. And we don't necessarily think about where we get our tables of correspondence, which is something that I have seen a lot more now than I used to. I see a fair number of people who just are learning their magic online, which is not something that I have a whole lot of experience with. But what they know is what's available online. And what's available online is here is this chart and a green candle means wealth. They don't know why the green candle means wealth, but it does. That's their correspondence. And so that's that's a very simple correspondence. I get more into sort of the idea of them and why we use them and where they come from. So we internalize these symbols. You know, we, we look at a table of correspondence in, you know, 2020, and we don't give a whole lot of thought to where that table came from. So why have we internalized the connection between the planet Mercury and communication to the extent that the little guy on the FTD symbol is Hermes. If you look at him, he's got the wings on his feet. So the idea is that it'll be something that's communicated over distance. And we've internalized that. We don't necessarily know why we know that, but we do. And so even, I guess you'd say mundane tables of correspondence you know, end up in our head. So is the project that you're doing right now around tables of correspondence, is that is that looking at how tables of correspondence are developed over time and where these associations come from? Or is it trying to create a way of interfacing different tables of correspondence such that you can sort of create a master table? Well, I don't think there's ever going to be a master table of correspondence. There's just too many different kinds. The other thing is that for me, anyway, tables of correspondence are an intensely personal tool. And mm. this is this is something that I've, I've used a lot of. This is just a, a general explanation. For example, in most tables of correspondence, the color red and the smell of roses is supposed to mean love. It's supposed to mean affection. Well, if I personally have a real distaste for the color red and the smell of roses makes me sick, that's not going to be a very successful correspondence for me. So that's not going to work for me. I'm going to need to work something else out. 
And so that's why I say there's never going to be one big table of correspondences because it's personal. It's up to the magician what their correspondences are. My interest in the tables of correspondence is more for here is this thing that everybody, most people know about, a table of correspondence. This means this, that means that. Why do we believe that it works that way? And how is it supposed to work, if that makes any sense? Because what we're dealing with right now, the correspondences that we deal with, like you and I, they're built from earlier sources. And those sources were built from earlier sources. So there's nothing like we would consider a primary source for a table of correspondence. But there's sources for tables of correspondence. There's, you know, the hermetic corpus that we use. And then there's all kinds of different other sources that we've got. They're 100 CE and earlier. And they were mostly astrological concepts and angels and concepts of the divine. And then people sort of went from there and started including astrological aspects and colors and feelings. And they started putting those into the tables of correspondence as well. So in terms of like our the first one or the primary, there isn't one. We don't know what it is. I mean, about as far back as most people will go is Agrippa. But he pulled from other sources, just like the other Hermetic Tables of Correspondence. We don't go to a bookstore and we don't pick up like a guide to magic from the 13th century or the 16th century. And, you know, there's a, there's a perpetual natural mag- magical calendar, I guess would be the best translation of it that was put out about 1600 that is essentially an enormous picture and it's synthesized it's magical and numerical symbolic philosophy but that's not original either it's pulled from a bunch of different sources and those sources are pulled from other sources so we are never going to know where some of these correspondences came from but i feel like we do need to know that they came from somewhere it's important to me that people know okay green means wealth to you well it's not just that the color green means wealth there's a whole history behind this of why green means wealth and you shouldn't assume that greens means wealth just because somebody told you it did i think people should look into it and find out why they're table of correspondence says the things that it does because we people our emotions can get in the way of things and if you're being told over and over again red means love and you hate the color red and you keep having real problems in that area in your life or in your magic then the problem's probably your table of correspondence it's not working for you you need to figure out something different so if someone was reevaluating their personal relationship with the table of correspondence that they were using because of these sorts of problems would the answer be to kind of throw it out and build something based on their own subjective feelings of what corresponds with what or would it be trying to find a different set of correspondences that more closely lines with what they were already sort of sensing the second i think that throwing everything out and doing your own table of correspondence is fine if you're never ever going to interact with another magical practitioner. But I think sometimes it's important to have sort of a base of knowledge about tables of correspondence. And so once this is like we were talking about earlier with chaos magic, once you've learned the basic table of correspondence, then you get to go off and decide what works for you. But you really have to learn a basic table first and try it to see if it works for you. If it doesn't, then you move on and you try something different for that one thing. But I don't think you throw everything out. That seems to, I mean, there's a reason a green candle means wealth. And that's because I think for a lot of people it works. So like in the in the sort of chicken and the egg idea, of does it work because green means wealth or does green means wealth because it tends to work? And you... then we are back at the back at the belief, you know, belief ends up giving power to things, right. um, you know? That's that's always a possibility as well. I'm the worst person to have on an interview because I say it depends or it's a personal thing or it's up to you like once every five minutes. And I apologize for that. But I hate to make statements because magic is such a personal experience. You know, when I say that tables of correspondence are personal, well, the practice of magic is very personal as well. And so what works for me may not work for you. And it's important to know what doesn't work, I think, just as much as it is to know what does work. This actually um, brings us sort of to something I've been wanting to ask you about regarding the the ritual oils that you make. So the the ritual oils that you're doing, they are 
based to some extent on on a series of correspondences, correct? Yes, absolutely. And I, I am curious about them because I, I I think that there's a something kind of fundamental about about magical materia that I feel like doesn't get discussed that much, which is this idea of when someone makes a magically potent thing for someone else, especially if it's supposed to be an ingredient in something else. So it's not, you know, the oil isn't necessarily the oil itself. It's the oil will be part of a candle working or the oil will be part of a bag or something like that. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you feel that even working with the basic ingredients of an oil, like where do we get if we just take something based on its own virtues? For example, if we, if we took a flower how much needs to be done to that flower before we really feel like we're dealing with magic in a serious way? Hmm. That's an excellent question. I don't know what you would have to do to the flower, <laughs> honestly, before you would turn it into something magical. And here I'm going to say again, it depends. In the hands of somebody who has a close and personal relationship with flowers or a real feel for that flower, they have an emotional relationship with that kind of flower, that color, then they might be able to use it to spark something within themselves. I think. But if you handed me a flower, it would really just be a flower because I'm not much for nature, which is funny because I work with a lot of herbs. But So when you're putting together one of these, one of these oils, for example, I, I noticed that you, you, you offer an oil for favorable verdicts in court cases, but you have two of them, one for civil cases and one for criminal cases. Yes, because it's two different kinds of law. My, my husband's an attorney, so... <laughs> So I know there's a difference between civil court and criminal court, and they need different energies, even though the stakes may be higher in civil court. In some cases, you know, somebody could be on the hook to lose everything they own. It is generally less volatile than a criminal court case. And so to me, that would take different ingredients, sort of different approach. And I put in the things to the oil that make sense to me and also you know, I want to make sure it smells okay because that's nobody really wants to use a rancid smelling oil. Although my banishing oil will get up into your sinuses and make you sneeze, which is as it's intended to. But I put botanicals in my oil as well because there's only so I think I tend to max out at three or four essential oils in any mix, anything more than that, and you your nose gets confused. But then in order to add more aspects to it, I use dried herbs and I use that based on. There's a couple different tables of correspondence that I use because I've used them over time. And then with regards to my oils, there's also an astrological aspect and a planetary aspect and sometimes a electional astrology aspect. But I don't know where the magic happens. To me, when I make the oil, it's done in a ritual manner and the, um, the essential oils are mixed together ritually. But then they're pulled out and put into and mixed with the main oil, you know, almond oil or whatever in the jar. I don't make like a big bucket of almond oil plus essential oils because that's when it starts to go bad. So I tend to just mix my essentials together and that's done in a ritual fashion. When you're developing these recipes, how much of this is based on simply sort of correspondences, how much of this is based on some kind of divinatory practice or maybe tr- traditional recipes? I mean, because I've noticed that you you sell some things that are, are, you know, I mean, a lot of it's, I imagine it's also just catering to the needs of the clientele, but like it is. some of these are very, you know, stop gossip oil, which, you know, there's a long tradition of stop gossip oils. Yes, there the is. World. So are you, are you making these sort of out of whole cloth based on the notion or are you like also pulling from some historic sources for these recipes? Well, some historic sources. I mean, I have a red fast luck and that is, you know, there's usually three oils that go into red fast luck and, but you have to decide which amount, you know, how big one area is going to be compared to another. And then for example, van van oil is going to be the same ingredients, but they may be in different proportions. So in terms of those, I went with recipes that I had or that I had gotten. For other ones, it was sort of try it and see. And it took me quite a while to come up with mixes that didn't offend. (laughs) Maybe we should say, I mean, I, I cannot tell you the number of oils that I would make and then I would bottle them and then I would put them away and a week later I would open them up and it would smell like something died in there. <laughs> I'd be like, nope, okay, on to the next mix. You know, it, it 
there was a lot of trial and error. And then there was a lot of trial and error when it came to what went into the oil, what herbal elements went into the oil as well. And I would make one, if it turned out that it smelled okay, I would have some people test it. And there was a lot of testing that went on before you know, I brought anything onto the market. But when you say testing, you mean just sort of, you know, this is this smells nice, this doesn't smell nice, or do you mean testing in the form of like magical I've got a court testing. case coming up? Yeah, well, no, not just me, but I, there were a bunch of people that I would be like, hey, could you try this, please? It might ruin your life, but it also might work really well. <laughs> And there are people who are willing to do that. This is a story that I often tell and for the risks people took trying the oils. The original formulation of my road opening oil was originally done in a different planetary hour on a different day. And I said to somebody, it was actually, I recruited people on Twitter, which is, you know, social media is great like that. Can I have some guinea pigs, please? And somebody said, sure, I'll give it a try. And apparently he used the road opening oil. And the goal that he wanted was he wanted to go back to school. And when I talked to him a month later, he said, I think you better change the formulation. I said, why? And he said, well, I got fired. My boyfriend broke up with me. I got kicked out of my apartment and had to move back in with my parents. And they said that I could on the condition that I go back to school. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well... What? That's good. So that actually ended up being named Nuclear Obstacles from Space and put to the side, sort of never to be looked at again. I still have it somewhere. I mean, it's in a bag with like written, do not use written on it. But yeah, I had to change the formulation of that because that's the sort of thing that I did. That's why, for example, I have a criminal court case oil and a civil court case oil because at first I had a court case oil and it worked really well for some people in one area. It worked really well for criminal and it didn't work as well for civil. So I reformulated it and had people try it in civil suits and it worked a lot better. So you mentioned that part of the evolution from nuke it from space, uh, <laughs> Bill Paxton, doom oil to road opening of a, of a more, I, I guess, <laughs> uh, gentle Yes. Sort of uh, mode. Um, no explosives, yeah. No explosives was uh, changing the planetary hours, which yes. is interesting because I, when I, when you look at something like, say, I don't know, like Hickromantia, say, there's a very strong association of just like plant X is picked in hour X, that these, yes. that these associations are just inborn to the plant. But is there some other sort of shaping going on by using different planetary hours? I That's how I do it. And this is one of those things where it was I... As I said before, I either like to know all kinds of stuff about a really broad amount or a lot about a small amount of stuff. And so I looked at planetary days when I was making the oils and I thought, oh, you know what? Perfect. Day of Venus for love oils, day of Jupiter, you know, this will work out really well. And I did. And I thought, well, you know, we could make this even more specific. We could make this and the planetary hours. And so I, you know, figured out the planetary hours for things. And a couple of times, you know, got up at five o'clock in the morning and made oils. And, you know, that was just sort of how I did it. And uh, then I got, you've seen there that there's electional oils. That was even more specific. There was somebody that I knew who did a lot of work with Picatrix elections So I was already like incorporating planetary correspondences into the oils, but I wasn't getting into, you know, lunar mansions and that stuff. That's not my area. But the idea of sort of a proactive astrological aspect, I was like, well, you know, this could be interesting. I would be interested to see if I could use Picatrix elections and make oils instead of talismans. And And I did. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Spoiler alert. I did. So I decided like which of the oils were closest to the purpose of the talisman. And then I did use the Picatrix incantations and the pictures and I sensed the oil vessels with the right incense. And sometimes I even put talismanic materials into the oil. Like my banishing oil contains yew bark because yew is ruled by Antares in the Picatrix. So, you know, if you want to get really, really specific, electional astrology is great for that. And Picatrix is great for that. So yeah, my electional oils are all, I guess you could say almost talismanic oils. Just to go back a beat, just because part of the premise of the show is is me trying to get people to to talk in the most granular detail. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I am a child who has wandered into the movie of your life and I need someone to explain the plot to me. 
all the time. When we talk about using, you know, first the out, first the planet of the day, and then the planet of the hour, are we talking about this idea of like Venus is 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 love, so we do Venus hour on Venus day, or is it something more along the lines of say I want I want an oil for love, but it has to be a kind of expansive and maybe even kind of like avuncular familial kind of love. So yes. it's, you know, Jupiter hour on a Venus day. Right. That's you start, you start moving stuff around and see what kind of aspects you want to work with. Because when you start messing around with planetary hours and planetary days, you can come up with all kinds of combinations that can help in terms of, you know, whatever you're working on. I think it is a lot fussier than a lot of people like to get. But, you know, fussy and ceremonial magic tend to go together, so. Big fan of fuss. Yeah. Love the fuss. It seems, though, you've, so it sounds like you found a few sort of tables of correspondence that you really draw on a lot because they've, they've been effective for you. Yes. Would you yes. be willing to disclose what they are and where they are from? Okay, so I use hermetic tables of correspondence. However, hermetic tables of correspondence are based on European plants and what a lot of American ceremonial magicians tend to do is we look for the thing closest to the European plant. We don't have that version of the plant. So we look to see what version we do have and we use that. And a number of years ago, I was sort of like, well, that that makes sense. Obviously, that's how a lot of people do it. But I wonder if there's tables of correspondence that are uniquely American. And there are. There's hoodoo correspondences. And I will say right now that I'm going to, I stay in my lane. I am not a hoodoo practitioner. I don't claim to be able to say anything about it or make any statements about it. I will say, however, that I have had great luck using the hoodoo tables of correspondence with certain plants. And that's, I think, partially because hoodoo is an American tradition and uses American plants, whereas the hermetic is different. So, so I tend to, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other, I, I mix it up. Is there a, a particular hoodoo table of correspondence that comes to mind as sort of your, your MVP for that sort of thing? There isn't really because there is no one... <laughs> There's no one source. I mean, you go into Herman Slater, it's one thing. You go into different sources, it's another. And I've, you know, generally the hoodoo tables of correspondence are pretty standard. And you can Google like hoodoo table of correspondence and pull one up. Or what does this herb mean in hoodoo? And that'll pull it up. I mean, I did a significant amount of research before I started messing with it, but I was I was interested in it too. I was like, well, how does this work? You know, we go back to the doctrine of signatures and sympathetic magic and all that is involved in all kinds of tables of correspondence, regardless of where they're from. When you're putting together an oil or putting together a ritual, even like I, my understanding is you do a fair amount of candle magic. I do. To what extent are you bringing in spiritual forces that are in some way, I guess sentient might be the question. Cause I mean, like we, when we talk about say using a plant, to what extent are we talking about the personality of the plant? Like, do you talk to the plants? Do the plants, do you develop a kind of packed with these plants or is well, it more sort of talking about an innate virtue it's talk it's more talking about an innate virtue um for me it's just i've said this before scent is something that sort of bypasses our conscious brain and it just goes straight to your lizard brain you know there's scents that will make you curl your nose up they'll you know we have reactions sort of visceral reactions to scents and i think that is sometimes what makes oils so effective because they're the most concentrated form of the plant and they have a lot of scent to them and they can pack a wallop. And so it's almost sort of, if you use oils, you can end up sort of training yourself to slip into sort of a ritual headspace just when you smell the oil and when you start using it. So, but I, I tend to think of them as more innate than active. I don't talk to plants. Maybe I should. I mean, it's a thought. And when you're when you're doing sort of more ritual work, like sort of like a candle spell or something like that, is it is it sort of just a question of of getting yourself in the right mind to work with these materials, or are you also calling down the spirit of um, well, Osiris comes to mind for some reason. I wonder if that was inspired in some way. <laughs> um, but let's say Osiris. Why not? Well, I probably wouldn't call down Osiris because I don't work with that pantheon. But in terms of I do ancestor work mm. and I actually you can't 
get the Catholic out of the girl. I do saint work. My mother's family has, you would almost say, a patron saint. And so St. Bridget is somebody that I consider myself having a relationship with. But it's one of those things where I think after you do it often enough, it's both. It's you have to put the appeal out, but you also have to be in the right mindset and you have to know when to do it and how to do it. And that's just something you learn with time. When you're when you develop these relationships with, say, your ancestors or, or with particular saints, how much of that sort of interaction is purely in the moment of the ritual and how much of that is sort of devotional work outside of that for you? Mm. I would say you don't get one without the other. If you don't do the devotional work, you're not going to get anything from the relationship. It's sort of a, and I know that other people have this sort of relationship as well. If you don't do the devotional work, you're not going to get anything else. So you have to put your time in sort of. So I would say that probably for me, it's about mm, at this point in time, probably about 60% devotional, just sort of, I'm here, I'm thinking about you, I'm offering you things. Don't you want to be nice to me? (laughs) The next time I talk to you, I'm probably going to ask you for something. I mean, it's better than, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, saying better, I don't want to make like a hierarchical comment or cast aspersions, but I do feel a bit weird about the amount of bullying that goes on in certain magical systems. Yes. Yeah, I don't. I also I'm... don't like standing up for myself. So that's just, that's just my psychology <laughs> probably. Well, I, uh, I think one of the reasons that I am comfortable working with, working the way that I do is because after a certain point, you're both familiar, you know, yourself and whatever spirit you're working with, sort of familiarize yourself with each other. And the times I have tried to go outside my comfort zone, I haven't really had great results with it. So I tend to stick with what I know. If I, if I may shift gears again, unexpectedly, how did you get into ancestor work? What was your door for that? Well, my mom passed away suddenly when I was 12. And that sort of shook into me all of a sudden is that, you know, one day people are here and then they're gone. And I got used to asking my mom for stuff because she wasn't around. So I would appeal to her spirit. And eventually that developed into, as I learned more about my family and about my family history, I started appealing to them as well. And that was, that wasn't even something that I found through one of my, you know, forays into different traditions. That was something that came up sort of organically because I come from an Irish Catholic family. And there is a certain amount of ancestor veneration in that. You have to know who your people are. You have to know where you're from. So that was just sort of almost organic for me. And I'm seeing it happen with a lot in a lot of magical traditions, people talking about ancestor work. And it's fascinating to me because a lot of the ways that they're approaching it are things that I would not have thought to. What's, a, what's an example of that? As you said, the, the, the bullying thing, the, like, the yelling, you know, the demanding yeah. things. I'm like, dude, if I, did that my, that? I, if I did that to my grandmother, I'd like somebody hit me with a lightning bolt. I mean, you don't want to mess around with that to me. I mean, the whole trying to manipulate things. I mean, for me, you ask for things and you might get them, but I would no more try to manipulate the spirit of my ancestors than I'd try to manipulate one of my relatives. They would know what I was doing and they'd be pissed. So, you know, that's where I am on that. And is there any sort of particular, so it sounds like you, when you started out, you had like a pretty good sense of like the names to call upon. Mm -hmm. When you got going, was it just sort of a question of, you know, I have a list of names. Hello, everyone in my, in my yoke of my own family. (laughs) How are you? Here's an egg or a glass of water or something along those lines. Or was it more sort of waiting for someone to show up once you, once you sort of had a sense of like the roster that, you know, someone appears well, there was there was a certain amount of research into who they were and how I could appeal to them specifically. Like there are ancestors to whom a glass of milk is great. There's other ancestors who, unless you offer them a cup of Jameson's, nobody's showing up. So you have to know who you're appealing to. But sometimes you can just put out the appeal and see who shows up. And when you're when you say this research, you mean just sort of like trial and error? With, with no, it's actually. Ghost- no, it's uh, it's more like go and learn about the person, because I think that's all part of ancestor worship, too, isn't it? You want to know as much as you can about these ancestors you're appealing 
to. So you find out what are their names, who are their siblings, how far did they go in school. I ran into a lot of trouble with my father's family because if you go back a couple of generations, our family disappears because our last name was a misspelling. Mm. So we don't know what it was a misspelling of, but it was a misspelling. So if you go to County Down in Ireland, you go back a few generations and we disappear. But the other side of the family, you know, I know a lot about. And so I did my research and I found out who people were and I found out where they lived and I found out what they did. And then I had a better idea of how to appeal to them rather than just saying, hey, anybody who shows up, because you never know who you're going to get. You never know if they're going to be friendly. I think it's an easier, you're going to have an easier time if you do the research and you know who the people are. And then we you put out an appeal, you can sort of have a general sense of who you're trying to attract. This, of course, makes perfect sense. Actually, before, it seems like we're coming up on an hour, so I don't want to hold you for too long, because I know you've got you've got kids who... No, I gave them frozen pizza. They're happy. <laughs> they you never know, it's get amazing, frozen. the offerings that work. Um, I know. <laughs> Tombstone but... pizza. Yes. We'll leave you alone for hours, okay? I am curious about, so you're, you're, you're developing this website on Magical Basics. Yes. And what what spurred that? You know, I mentioned Twitter previously. <laughs> it was actually Twitter. Look, Twitter's good for something. I was talking trash about some book on Twitter with Sam Block. And um, somebody sent me a direct message that said, I'm so embarrassed, but what book is that? I've never heard of it. And my reaction was, how could you have not heard of this, you know, Paracelsius, come on. Or Paracelsus. I always get that wrong. And then I realized there's no reason for this person to have heard of it. I've heard of it because of the, you know, because I've been practicing magic for 30 years and I've run into a lot of people and I've done a lot of different things and I've read a lot of different books, but there would be no reason for absolute beginner to know that this was even something that was on their radar. And then I started thinking about all the things that we think are instinct but aren't. And the thing that that probably the longest essay on that website is on candles and how we trim them before we light them and how you avoid getting that annoying ring of wax on the outside and what to do if your candle starts tunneling and the difference between a taper candle and a pillar candle because at some point in time we all learned that right when you think of a pillar table and a taper candle you think of two different things but i mean only because i have to order them online like that i would not have known honestly See, that's the thing, though, is that to me, like, of course, it's different. And what's the difference between a tea light and a votive? Well, I know the difference between a tea light and a votive. Well, somebody else might not. So what I started doing was I started going, okay, back it up. Wait, no, further back than that. Nope, further back than that. How do you light a candle correctly? What's your best bet for a candle? Should, what should it be made of? You know, what's my best bet for a candle that can burn until it gutters? Because there's a lot of, I don't want to say pre-made, but pre-written spells that say things like keep the candle lit until it gutters. If you're using a standard taper candle, you're going to be there for eight to 10 hours. <laughs> and that's going to be really probably too long. So, you know, the average burn times of candles, these are all things you learn as you're practicing. The difference between stick and sun and cone incense and how did you learn how to burn resin incense i just had to do it and i feel like i broke something in the process of trying to learn how to do that which was uh which was great or someone broke something we had an ashtray it was made out of stone it doesn't matter (laughs) anyway but you know there's those little charcoal discs that you get well you know where is that written in magic 101 you need I mean, this kind of charcoal, and that's how you burn resin incense. Like, that that's not, not anywhere, but I feel like it should be, because that's a really basic bit of information that, for example, I would think, well, yeah, that's how you burn resin incense. But at some point in time, I had to learn that. Of course. And, you know, we all had to learn these things, and I think for some of us who've been practicing magic for you know, a couple of decades, you forget that you didn't always know these things. And so for me, sort of this magical basic site is going as far back as I can and making things as elementary as I can, because even the beginner stuff assumes a certain level of familiarity and a certain level of knowledge with tools that people just may not have. And I hate to see people feeling stupid if I can help them. (laughs) So that's kind of why I did it. That's really lovely.
We need more things of that sort. So that's <laughs> so if people want to learn these important bits of information, where like do they that, go? It's all, it's all drafts right now. It's all drafts and there's things appear and they disappear. It's called magicalbasics.net. But it is Amazing. not in any way a finished product. And then the other one that is Quadrivium Supplies. I am a wholesaler, so you would buy my product at retailers. And my website is quadrivium-supplies.com. And that also actually is in the middle of an overhaul. But you can usually find me on Instagram and on Twitter as Quadravi. And you can talk to me there. And I can have links there to where people can buy my products. Amazing. And actually, it feels like we're getting to we're getting to a point where I, I would typically ask someone I was interviewing if there was one big golden nugget you wanted to give to all the all the young people out there. Way <laughs> um, to make me feel 80. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I'm saying this as someone who also feels, you know, like young people, they're all it's just anyone who's sort of, you know, in the journey of becoming a self, which is never ending you know, they're still trying to do yeah. it or something. They haven't given up on becoming themselves yet. <laughs> so, you know, that could be at any age, as yes. long as they're not Gen X. Anyway, because um, I feel like that's sort of ingrained in the Gen X mindset of like, you know, I'm, I'm really giving is. up. It's all, it's, it's, that's all for posers. I'm going to scoff. You know, I, uh, I am Gen X and that is um, very like how we are. Everybody forgets about us. It's very sad. <laughs> The, the forgotten middle child of the American I know. mindset. I know. Like, we we already knew how to do this with the whole staying home and not talking to anybody thing. We did that for years. Latchkey kids. Come on. Ah, memories. <laughs> yep. Me too. Do I have a golden nugget? I don't know. I don't know. I like to tell people to, it's, it all, of course, comes back for me to tables of correspondence. And find out why you're using what you're using. That's probably one of my main concerns or interests right now is that people don't always look at why they're doing what they're doing. Why are you practicing that particular kind of magic? Why are you using the tools that you're using? Is it because somebody told you to? Maybe you should look at other ways of doing things. Is it because this is what you've always done? Maybe it's time you should try something new. I don't want to say look at motivations, but look at the reasons. Look at why you're doing it and look at who told you that you should be doing it that way. Because like with chaos magic, sometimes what you've learned is great, but not all of it is useful. And some of it you can put down and you can move forward more effectively without it. So you always have to be examining the reasons why you're doing things as stupid as it may sound. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the things that feel like they should be big and obvious that people forget the most. Probably. But uh, that was really lovely. That's a perfect <laughs> little golden nugget. Thank you so okay. much for that. <laughs> well, I hope I didn't go off on too many tangents. I'm oh, not... no. You were a joy. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to Catherine. That was just a joy for me and really exemplifies the kind of the kind of folks I love having on this show, which is someone who, you know, they're, they've been doing it for a while, they're established, they have like some strong sense of who they are, what they're doing and why and where they're going, but at the same time, they match that with this, this boundless curiosity, you know, the image that comes to mind, because of course it does for me, is just, you know, the mycelial network of, of some kind of mushroom, you know, just, just shooting through the darkness of rich soil, through that sort of beautiful, primordial carpet of the living and the dead, and, and just, you know, going in every direction, searching, finding, connecting, forming networks for other things as well. You know, that, that, that joining of knowledge and enthusiastic search. It's just, you know, one of those things that I just, I, I want to bring to this kind of program. But anyway, I will uh, put links in the show notes to uh, the Magical Basics website, to Quadrivium Supplies' website, and also to Catherine's Twitter and Instagram, so you can you can reach out to Catherine there. And if you want to reach out to me, uh, the show has an Instagram and a Twitter, uh, at WitchHassle. You can reach out to just me, the person, at Cooper Wilhelm. Uh, on Twitter right now, my AVI is a pregnant bat that I thought was really cute. This has been Witch Hassle. Thank you so much for joining us. Our theme music was uh, recorded by 
Edward Lee and performed by Sebastian Baverstam. If you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash witchhassle. I would appreciate it greatly. And thank you to the current Patreon supporters. You make all of this easier, more fun, and and just, you know, it's just nice to have that feeling of support. Hope you enjoyed the show. Reach out. Why not? Say hi. This has been Witch Hassle. Uh, hugs and kisses. Toodaloo.